Open your Bibles to Romans chapter 11. The tail end of that chapter has some profound things that it talks about. The four verses, 33 through 36. Romans chapter 11. If you don't have a Bible, we'll have it up on the screens in, in just a minute for you. Um, but if you have one, it'd be good to find it. Back in the uh, early 80s, when I got married, my wife and I moved to uh, Boulder, Colorado. And we figured we'd help a very impoverished, difficult-to-live arena of, uh, of the world. No, have you ever been to Boulder? Boulder's beautiful. Um, it's crazy beautiful. I met Jesus in Boulder. Actually, I met Jesus on Pearl Street in Boulder. He was wearing a diaper. And uh, <laughs> he said he was Jesus anyway. I had the best tan of any man I've ever seen in my life. Anyway, um, but there's, a, there's a, a, a road that goes up to the Rocky Mountain National Park, Route 36. And I don't know if you've ever been there, but you, keep, you climb your way out of Boulder up the hill. And it, as it, before it drops into Estes Park, which is kind of the gateway to the Rocky Mountain National Park, you're at the top of the hill looking at the view. And I'm not kidding you. If you've never been there before, the first time you drive into that valley, you kind of go, oh, my gosh. You see... You see um, you see glaciers, I guess, or snowpack, a lot of snowpack. You, you see the, the 14,000-foot peaks in the park. You see the lake. You see the, the, the town. It's, it's pretty mind-blowing. I mean, isn't that the way it is? Whenever you get to the top of a mountain, you look back at something, you, you can have perspective. Chapter 11, verses 33 through 36, is Paul's top-of-the-mountain moment. And he's looking back at 11 chapters of how great and how big and how awesome is our God, and he's going... I don't even know how to put it into words. He's beyond description. He's mind-blowing. This is what theologians would say is the doxology of false theology. It's the reason why we sing songs. It's the reason why we praise God is because these things aren't just on a page somewhere. They're not just rules. They're life for dead people. Amen? Amen? Amen. Okay, so we're just going to look at the obvious today. We're going to look at God. From, from Paul's vantage point, these four verses are very simple. It breaks down in three little pieces, right? Thoughts, big thoughts about God, how it makes him think about himself and us, and then the ultimate finish line, verse 36, which is kind of an explosion of, of, of praise. Um, so that's what we're going to do today. Three thoughts of God, verse 33. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. I lived in the Midwest for a long time, and uh, for those, I don't know, 18 years of my life, uh, I found as many places that I could have recreation as possible. One of those places was a place called Devil's Lake, Wisconsin, and I had a lady before come up crying, you mentioned Devil's Lake. I don't know what that means, um, but, but it's a place that we'd go swimming. Devil's Lake was kind of a man-made lake in a canyon, okay? The water is really, really black. It has a man-made beach, and if you venture out past the beach, it just drops, you can't see five feet in the water, and it's a really, really deep lake. And the feeling that I have always got climbing off the end of that beach and just dropping is, is sort of like this phrase, oh, the depths. Oh, my gosh, we're in deep water. It's over my head. This is God we're talking about. This wonderful look back at the gospel of God that found not only in the beginning of, of one through three, this idea that we are far worse than we ever feared. That the good news always starts with the tragic bad news. That we aren't, just, we aren't just a little bit messed up. We're massively messed up so much so that the Bible said, says we're dead in our transgressions and sins. And so we need life. And Jesus comes in and, in chapter 3. But God. 
But God grants life and faith to those who would believe. Um, and he brings about new birth that Paul talks about and transformation. The amazing truth that God not only saves his kids, he transforms his kids. He keeps the promise to do that. Right after he gets done talking about the transformation, I'm assuming that there's a whole bunch of potentially paranoid Christians who think, okay, he's talking about transformation. I have so many areas of my life that are out of order. And then he starts this whole kind of perspective of what it's like to struggle with the flesh and the soul. The very thing I want to do, that's what I can't do. The thing that, that I don't want to do, that's what I end up doing, right? Who's going to rescue me from this body of sin and death? Paul says, praise be to Jesus. And so he talks about the struggle, the fight of sin with the soul, of the God-loving soul of a man. And then he jumps right out of that reality. This is a spiritual reality. This is going to be your story, the fight with sin. But then he says, and just to remind you, there's no separation and there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Amen. Amen. That is the best news anybody ever heard. Jesus saves and so covers a person that he will not bring up our sin anymore. Not one of them. Not your struggles, not your ongoing issues. He is going to cover and transform us. Amen? And he talks about the, this, his sovereignty to make that possible. That God in his wisdom and his control chooses those he will and whoever he wants to be saved. And just to remind us, Paul says, and by the way, you're responsible, though, how you treat Jesus. You can have him if you want him. You can have him if you want him, but, but you will ultimately be measured by what you do with Christ. Paul brings in Israel to remind us that God's a promise keeper. He's going to keep his promise to all, all, of, all of his promises, including the one to Israel. And then he just, he just erupts in praise. In this first verse, he talks about this depth, this depth of the riches and the wisdom of knowledge of God. Let me paraphrase that for you. In other words, God knows everything. He knows everything. Oh, the depth of the riches and the knowledge of God. It's too deep for us. He is sovereign, and he's so sovereign that he can take sinners who are not just a little bit broken, but really broken and at war with him, really at war with him, stubborn opposition to a holy God's control, and he can so change our hearts by, by faith in Christ. For some of you in here, um, when things are going well, you love God's control. And you would say, isn't that great? God's good. But, but maybe you didn't hear me. God's in control of all the pieces. So he's, he's in charge of the beginning and the middle and the end of every story of every person who walks on the planet. He's in control of all of that. He doesn't need time to discover the outcome of events so that he can make appropriate adjustments to, to make things work out his way. He knows what he's doing. Nothing confuses him. He has no questions, and he's not in the process of developing. Our God is... Fully, complete, holy, and true, and right, and good. And Paul's response to this wonderful gospel is that, God, you're just beyond me. Not only do you know everything, the great part about God, not only does he have the knowledge, he has the wisdom, which means he knows what to do with what he knows. He knows how to do a strategic strike on his people, for his people, in the world, for his fame. That's what God does. So watch this. this these are the parts that when you're in a deep, deep spot, you need to remind yourself of, of these truths. God is precise in knowing how to use his wisdom to deal with and bring trouble when it's necessary. And he also is the one who knows when to bring pressure, and he knows when to rescue, and he knows when to let up. He knows exactly our limits. He knows what he's doing. He knows us, and he knows how to control it. He knows when to encourage us. He knows when to reveal things, when to conceal things. 
He knows everything, and he knows how to apply everything he knows. Amen? Now, these things are big thoughts. These are things that make us trust God and sing praise and live a life of worship to God because he is, he is fully, he knows everything, and he's so great at what he does. Look what he says here in verse 33. How unsearchable are his judgments. The word really means, or the phrase really means, you can't search to the bottom of it. The, the message, Eugene Peterson's paraphrase, is this. It's over our heads. What God decides to do is beyond my ability to understand what he's doing or how it's going to work out. Other than just his glory and my good, I just don't know precisely how these things are working out. Now, you could take your own story and probably write an entire book on the reality of that statement. How unsearchable are his ways? How, how else can you describe a situation where a woman goes for a routine medical exam to find a, a bit of cancer that she couldn't have found unless she went through that exam? Only to have the ripple of that story allow a testimony and God's glory and, and growth in her own life. How can you explain that stuff? I told you about Kevin Shuck a couple of months ago. How can you explain a man going to, to Mayo's Clinic to get a clear bill of health one week? One week. And the week later, have such a cataclysmic stroke that his life has changed forever. And how do you know the ripples of that? How do you know the words that come out of his mouth in a hospital room to nurses who don't know our Savior, who hear faith in a man who's just had his life changed and go, there's something to this Jesus. How do you know what the ripples are? You wouldn't plan that. You wouldn't organize that on your worst day. And yet God didn't take those gory details of our life and bring about his story in this world for his glory. Amen. I also like to spin it. I mean, obviously, we can, sometimes we learn lessons the hard way. Maybe most of the time we do. But how would you possibly know why God hasn't done things or allowed things like that in your life? You know, to some of us, we don't have any needs whatsoever. We have more money than we need. We've never been sick. Things have gone really, really well. Our kids grew up, and they're not totally knuckleheads. That's good. Um, how could you know, possibly, that having what you want and more than you need is a way that God will reveal more sin that he's coming after. How could you possibly know? You don't know. Well, none of us are smart enough. His ways are unsearchable. What he decides to do, I can't plumb. Look what he says in the end of verse 33. He mentions how inscrutable how inscrutable are his, are his ways. It means beyond tracing out. There's a noun form of this Greek word, um, or phrase, it's, it's the word footprint. In other words, we, we have no clue where God is going or when he's coming. We really don't know the plan of God or the mind of God specifically like that. But the promise of Scripture is that we can spot his footprints in the process. Like he doesn't send me a, a script on my life and say, hey, by the way, this is going to happen here, and you're going to respond this way there, and I've got you covered here, and you're going to bear up under this for a while. I don't know. I don't know when he's coming or how he's going, but I can always see the footprints of his promises. If we just use the Old Testament as an illustration, let's try out Abraham, for example. Abraham, as an old man, had to believe a promise of God that, Abraham, I'm going to make you a huge family, so big of a family, so big of a nation that if you were to count the stars, you're going to outnumber the stars. Well, in reality, Abraham, even in his old age, got Isaac, but he never saw the fruition of, 
descendants so many that he couldn't count them. He had to see the footprint of God's promise in Isaac and believe that God was going to deliver on all of that. Moses himself had a, a similar experience in the sense that he heard God, talked to God, brought the law down to the people, led the people, saw the miracles of God to deliver the people, and he never quite got to the promised land. But God's a promise keeper. He saw the footprints. What about Paul himself? Now, my guess is, or my preference would be, that good news people have happy things happen to them. But Paul is just the opposite. Paul in 2 Corinthians mentions this litany of things as a good news distributor. Here's what happened. I was beaten, 40 lashes minus one. I was beaten with rods. I was stoned. I was shipwrecked. I went without food. I was hungry. I was thirsty. I had no place to sleep. I was on the run in danger of everything and had the burden of church people on me. And here's the reality of it. We don't know what Paul knew specific about what God was doing, but we knew he knew the footprints because we, we saw this in Romans chapter 5. This is Paul's thoughts about what he goes through and what every believer goes through. We rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, character produces hope, hope does not put us to shame because God love, God's love has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit. That's the footprint. Like, I don't know exactly why all of these beatings and shipwreck and hunger and all that. I don't know how that all works out to one thing, though, God. You are developing my character, my endurance, my maturity, and my hope, of which I wouldn't go through any of these things to get there. It's the footprints. You can't get to the bottom of God. He knows everything. He makes decisions we can't understand. He's beyond tracing out but watch now this wonderful transition in verses 34 and 35. This is the contrast to compare moment. This is the mirror moment for Paul. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor, or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? Um, I used to wrestle in high school, and uh, this happened every meet. Every tournament, you would show up, the team, other team that was coming or teams, they would get off the bus, and you would go back to the locker room area, and a ref would be there with a scale. Certified scale by the state. And every guy would start the process of scoping out who is his competition. Like, where's the weight class? Where's the 138s? Where's the 145s, right? And we would take off our sweats, and we would stand almost naked on this, on this scale. And you would look at him and go, what's he made of? He, you know, most of them were doing roids at the time. I'm, just, I'm kidding. I was the only one that was playing fair. Um, but they were so huge. You know, there's no way you're packing all of that meat in a 145-pound man. You're just too big for that. And, and you would kind of go, okay, how, how can I size him up? What's, his, what's he capable of? That's sort of a moment for Paul as he's looking at the greatness of God, and he suddenly says, okay, he's too big to fathom. What, look at me. Uh, these are the questions that he asks in verses 34 through 35. It goes something like this. For who has known the mind of the Lord? In other words, nobody can explain God. God dribbles over every edge. You can't write a book, you can't write a paragraph, you can't write a song that hems in God. You can't sort him out, okay? How possibly can you explain these things of God that don't happen in anyone, anywhere else in all of the cosmos? How do you explain the Trinity, that God exists as one God in three persons? How do you say that other than just to say that? What paragraph can you offer someone to unlock all the nuances of that phrase and that truth? How do you explain the eternality of God? 
Yeah, he always was and he always will be. He had no beginning and he has no end. The only one in all of the universe who's eternal. How do you explain the transcendence of God? How do you explain the fact that God doesn't live in time? That he's not experiencing this moment like we are. That he's not going to see what you have for lunch. He knows it all outside of time. He doesn't watch your life as it unfolds. He's in charge of every bit of, his li- of your life and my life and the world's life now. And he sees it all and knows it all. How do you explain his transcendence? How, how do you explain his omnipresence? That he's right here right now with his people. And he's at every other church in the world right now. That he's with sick people in countries you can't spell. That he's in every place, in every restaurant, in every store, in every neighborhood, in every street, in every place in the world. He's everywhere. How do you explain that? How do you explain um, that he's infinite? There's no constraints. How do you explain that he's self-existent? He needs nothing. Nothing to make him happy. Nothing to make him whole. Nothing to make him satisfied. Nothing to make him endure. Nothing to make him holy. He has everything all together, one, by himself. He needs nothing else. Now, you understand, we're talking about the things that don't translate to our world. He's not like us. And that's what Paul says. He looks at this wonderful view of God, and he says, who, who can know the mind? Who can explain God? Nobody can explain God. He spills over. Or who has been his counselor? Nobody can counsel God. The, the, Eugene Peterson's paraphrase of, of this phrase, he says it this way. Is there anyone smart enough to tell him what to do? And, and you, in your right mind, would say, I would never tell God what to do, but there's a, there's a way in which we sort of do. Every time we argue with what the Bible clearly says, we're suggesting that somehow you might have a better idea than God. Every time we choose to disobey a clear command of Scripture, we're choosing to say that God doesn't know best at that moment, right? Every time we complain about his control, and by the way, this shouldn't happen. I'm just, this is just coming out of me. It's 11, so you get the raw nerve. Church people shouldn't complain. They just shouldn't complain. You shouldn't complain about what you eat, what you drink. You shouldn't complain about the volume. You shouldn't complain about worship and style. You shouldn't complain. You're a sinner, a dead person who's been rescued by Jesus. What do you have to complain about? But the reality of it is, we do. We argue with God, we justify our sin, and we complain about his control. Here's what Paul says. Who could tell God he's messing this up? Who could tell God he doesn't know what he's doing? The answer doesn't need to be answered. It's, it's obvious. Nobody. Shut your mouth. There you go. <laughs> Look at the end of 35, verse 35. Or who has given him a gift or given a gift to him that he might be repaid. There is a, another way to look at this. That phrase is like um, saying it this way. God, I gave you the gift of my life, and I gave you the gift of my obedience, and I've done all these things in your name. You owe me. I'm good, or at least I'm better than everybody else, or I'm better than these people. God, you owe me. Haven't you been paying attention to my life and my obedience and my service and my giving? God, you owe me something. Well, here's the reality of what Paul says. Nobody has anything to offer to God that God should go, wow, I'm really, I'm really impressed. Let me... Let me pay you back for what you've done. So we can't complain to God and say that what he's doing and how he's doing it is unfair. 
Um, that's not sure. Now, maybe a classic illustration of how to make a point would be to use the life of Job for all of this. Job was a righteous man, and yet God wanted to use him to make a point that people worship God apart from what he gives. And so um, he let Job be sifted by Satan, and so he lost his possessions. He was a wealthy man. He lost his family. He had 10 kids that died. He lost his health of it. And, and like probably every human, there's some questions that are starting to formulate. At least his friends who show up to try to encourage him, they suggest, what most people suggest, that you're not suffering for nothing. What did you do wrong? You know, God always blesses the people that do it right, and he pounds the people who don't. So what did you do wrong, Job? And uh, Job starts explaining himself and then leaning into whining a little bit, like a, a little bit leaning into, this is unfair. Kind of, kind of this, this phrase that Paul talks about. And so, so God in chapters 38 through 41 of Job just goes after Job and his friends. And he asks a series of questions that put man in our place to say that, that there isn't anything that we've done that we can offer to God that has earned anything. We get what we get by his gracious mercy, amen? So I wanted to read some of this because it's just so poignant Whenever we're in the position to go, I deserve, I need, I've done, I, whatever, God, just remind yourself of these questions. This is the paraphrase, by the way, so I hope that's okay. God says, why do you talk without knowing what you're talking about? Pull yourself together, Job, up on your feet, stand tall, act like a man. I have some, I have some questions for you, and I want some straight answers. Where were you when I created the earth? Tell me, since you know so much. Who decided on its size? Certainly you know that. Who came up with the blueprints and the measurements, and how was its foundation poured? And who set the cornerstone while the morning stars sang in chorus and all the angels shouted praise? And who took charge of the ocean when it gushed forth like a baby from the womb? That was me. I wrapped it in soft clouds and tucked it away safely at night. Then I made a playpen for it, a strong playpen so it could run loose and said, stay here. This is your place. Your wild tantrums are confined to this place. And have you ever ordered morning to get up or told dawn to get back to work so you could seize earth like a blanket and shake out the wicked like cockroaches as the sun brings everything to light, brings out all the colors and shapes, the cover of darkness is snatched from the wicked and they are caught in the very act. Have you ever gotten to the true bottom of things, explore the labyrinth caves of deep ocean. Do you know the first thing about death? You have, you have one clue regarding death's dark mysteries. And do you have any idea how large this earth is? Speak up if you have a beginning of an answer. Do you know where light comes from and where darkness lives so you can take them by the hand and lead them home when they get lost? Why, of course you know that. You've known that your whole life. Have you ever traveled to where snow is made? Seen the vault where hail is stockpiled? The arsenals of hail and snow that, it, that I keep in readiness for times of trouble and battle and war? Can you find your way to where lightning is launched or do you, to the place from which the wind blows? Who do you suppose carves canyons for the downpours of rain and charts that root off thunderstorm, root of thunderstorms that bring water to unvisited fields, desert, no one ever lays eyes on, drenching the useless wasteland so there 
carpeted with wild flowers and grass. And who do you think is the father of rain and dew, the mother of ice and frost? You don't for a minute imagine these marvels of weather just happen, do you? Can you catch the eye of the beautiful Pallady sisters or distract Orion from his hunt? Can you get Venus to look your way or get the great bear and her cubs to come out to play? Do you know the first thing about the sky's constellations and how it affects things on earth? Can you get the attention of the clouds and commission a shower of rain? Can you take charge of the lightning bolts and have them report to you for orders? What do you have to say for yourself? And that's one page of four chapters of God questioning man about his response to what God is in control of. The reality of that one little experience made Job say, okay, uncle, you're right, I don't know anything. And I never did know anything. And the reality of a view of God and his great goodness through Christ to sinners who don't work or earn their way out of their problem, who are covered so perfectly covered that they walk righteous for all eternity, that nothing can separate us from the love of God and nothing can condemn us ever again. That wonderful truth right there blows Paul's mind to such a degree he just looks at God and says, thank you, but I don't understand you. Because you spill over the edges. So, we don't know anything. We don't know what he's doing or how he's doing it specifically, but we know he's good. Amen? So, look at how Paul finishes chapter 11. One verse. Three little phrases we'll, we'll look at. And from him and through him and to him are all things. That idea from him is that he is the creator of all things. This world we live in, obviously, creation and the order of things, clearly that's what he's the source of. And by the way, just to make it really clear, God didn't make the heavens and earth for his happiness because he was eternally perfectly happy without it. And, and, and God didn't add so that uh, something could be added to him. The reason God made was to go on display, period, for his glory. God is so awesome. He is so beautiful and so perfect in everything. He went on display to show off that he's great. All right? For his honor and for his praise. God is also the source of this wonderful gospel we've just studied for the last 16 months. No man, no man anywhere could come up with a story like this. How could you ever come up with a salvation that satisfies the justice of God and sets sinners free? How could you ever come up with the idea that the holy wrath of God um, can be satisfied in Christ? How could you ever come up with a plan of, of salvation apart from any work or effort simply by grace? What man could think that up? How, how could you ever come up with a plan of salvation that brings about the total and complete holy transformation of a people? Who could do that? And who could do all of that and God get all the glory. Salvation that results in God's glorious praise. God does that. He's the creator of, of all things and our salvation. He is the sustainer of all things through him. Do you see that, that phrase there? For from him and through him. Um, he holds everything together by the power of his word. We breathe right now. We hear right now because of his good kindness to us. 
Listen to how Paul talks about this in Colossians. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is above all things. And in him all things hold together. I told you this last week, so let me make a punchline again. Some of you are still standing your ground against God. And you're just here because someone invites you or you walked in and you have no idea uh, who or what we are, but you would, you would be identified as someone at a kind of a, a cosmic war with God. And the only reason anybody takes another breath is because of God's kindness and patience leaving room for you to come to your senses and receive Christ in repentance and faith. He's holding you together to hear. He's, he's allowing you here for this moment. His power sustains all things. And by the way, the way Paul finishes here, to him are all things, he gives us a supreme reason for everything you do in your life. How do you, how do you make sense out of waking up tomorrow and doing nothing but feeding children and washing clothes? How do you make sense of showing up at work and going, punching a clock we're a job that nobody knows and you probably don't care much about? How do you make sense out of sickness and in health? How do, you, how do you make sense out of riches and poverty? How do you make sense out of being too busy and bored out of your mind? How do you make sense out of all this stuff? Because everything you do, whether you eat or whether you drink, is done to the glory of God, right? From him, through him, to him, to him be the glory. Everything for his glory. Let me finish where Paul finishes. And I'm going to paraphrase just a touch. To him be the glory forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. And the church said, Amen. Amen. Let's pray together. God, you are greater than our minds can comprehend. You're the only source of the definition of love, selfless love. You're the only uh, understanding we have of righteousness and holiness. You're the depiction of mercy and grace to us. God, all we can do is marvel at you. We've seen from chapters 1 and Two and three, that our problem is so great that it needs a holy provision. And we have seen that Jesus is that answer. And we've seen by faith that sinners can go free, so free that you will judge them no more. Our sin is gone as far as the east is from the west. You will not bring it up. God, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. God, by your sovereign decision, you pulled us from darkness to light. That was your choice, not ours. It's free to all, and you keep all your promises. All we can do is erupt in the praise that Paul erupted in. We say thank you, thank you. In our Savior's name we pray, amen.